Welcome to the Harvard in Tech Seattle podcast with your host, Amr Benz. Welcome to episode nine of the Harvard in Tech Seattle podcast. Our guest today is Kevin Liu Huang. Kevin is an MBA student at Stanford. He's also an officer in the Marine Corps Reserves and aspires to entrepreneurship. He graduated Harvard College in 2013 with a joint concentration in statistics and government, and he runs a newsletter called Chiral Defense. We're very excited to have Kevin on the show today. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Howard. Appreciate it. To start things off, could you tell us a little bit more about your time at Harvard? We know that you concentrated in stats and gov. Sure. So I graduated from Harvard in 2013. Um, I was actually supposed to be class of 2012, but I took a gap year between high school and freshman year, mostly because I wanted to just do a little soul searching. I ended up going to China where I learned some Chinese, but also worked in nonprofit for a bit and uh, did the same thing in Africa for the second part of that before coming back to China for the summer. So a little bit of travel, but mostly just getting in touch with my roots and exploring volunteerism. And at Harvard, I was pretty focused on extracurriculars when I probably should have been more focused on academics. But I spent a lot of time with the International Relations Council, did you know the classic combo of Harvard Molly UN, Harvard National Molly UN. And then I also did ICMUN, which was the traveling team. Towards the end of senior year, I also did WorldMUN which is the conference that travels every single spring break. And so we did, actually in junior year, I was a participant running a committee in Vancouver. And then a year later, I helped run the conference in Melbourne. So it was a really fun experience, did a lot of international relations stuff. I also was a prolific ballroom dancer. So I was one of the freshmen, like hundreds of freshmen who joined the ballroom dance team. And uh, I was way more into it than I thought I would be. I ended up being really competitive, was teaching the team when I was a sophomore and kept teaching the team even two years after I graduated, but had a great time. Uh, it was really fun from, from those two communities in particular. Uh, but besides that, you know, I was trying to take politically related classes, especially the government stuff. I think I was interested in being a PhD at some point. So I tried to take a lot of the 2000 level gov classes and try to go over to the Kennedy School as much as I could was already pretty interested in national security. And so I took a few of the nuclear weapons proliferation classes. I think Graham Allison was teaching a class at HKS about national security and press. So I had a lot of great classes like that. And uh, I probably didn't do very well on the, the stats side of house, even though I graduated and with a stats degree and I taught a few of the stats classes, I think 104 and 107 as like a TA. It's still not something super comfortable for me, but I spent a lot of my time kind of mostly on extracurriculars with a little bit of academic focus as well. You said that you, you kind of had the idea that maybe you want to go for a PhD. And as our listeners will, will soon find out, like I did, is that you didn't particularly go down that route. Was there something that happened at Harvard that kind of steered you away from that path? Uh, I think uh, my senior year really changed things. I think... Um, First, there was a lot of peer pressure to go do a lot of uh, business stuff, right? A lot of consulting and banking. So I think I was feeling that a little bit. I think the other part of me, as I was working on my thesis, realized, wow, this really isn't that much fun. 
my thesis, I thought was interesting when I started. I was trying to predict the frequency and the locations of terrorist attacks in Iraq. It was very rich data. The analysis was interesting, I suppose, from a, like a statistics point of view. But I think just the research process was extremely grinding. And I think I realized, uh, you know, once I did my analysis and realized that, oh, your results are inconclusive, like your hypothesis isn't supported at all. I was pretty devastated by that and realized, oh, I, I don't think I could do a life and career like this. So that was definitely like the nail in the coffin. But even before that, I think the allure of wanting to be competent in the business world was pretty strong. So I ended, uh, I ended up doing a lot more thinking around consulting and ended up recruiting there instead. And when I look back, I think that was the right move to at least not do the PhD. It definitely wouldn't have been the right direction for me, just given the lifestyle, given the uh, the focus on the studying of, the, of things instead of the doing of things. So in retrospect, I think it's good that I realized that earlier than later. And and then look, what did you decide to do after that? So I, I was going for consulting and unfortunately didn't get the offers I really wanted. But having not gotten any of those offers, I ended up working for Capital One in Boston. There were a few advantages to that. It wasn't a traveling consulting role. So it was internal, which meant that I got to stay in Boston. And that actually helped me do the things I loved more. You know, I was still around a lot of my friends. I was able to continue dancing with the Harbor Ballroom dance team. Yeah, it, it ended up being great because I, I, and I did love Boston, to be honest. So, but that was probably the, the main factor that like the ones, the roles that I thought I wanted didn't work out, but it ended up being quite okay. I found a lot of good things about Boston and Really, a lot of internal consultants come from the management consultancies like McKinsey, Bain, and BCG. So I think you end up getting a lot of similar skill set, but perhaps with less of the travel and uh, less of the, the client focus as, as it currently exists. Right, that makes sense. And at Capital One, what kind of projects did you work on? At Capital One, I got to do some projects focused on retail credit cards. So it's like the Target branded credit cards or the Macy's ones. Capital One is one of the companies that provides the credit card infrastructure for those. So I worked on some of the strategy for how we could attract more retailers to our portfolio. Worked on an interesting project to expanding to Mexico. I think that's something that we hadn't really considered. And we were trying to figure out if we were to go to Mexico, which products would we take and how would we do it? You can probably tell by the fact we're not in Mexico what the results of that project was. Not to say that we'll never be there. But it was interesting. It was a cool project. And I think I was maybe one or two meetings away from going to Mexico and doing more primary research. But the market data kind of led us a different direction. I think the last big project that I really remember was working around like financial advice and how do we help customers be better investors and what solutions can Capital One bring that embrace kind of the rising technology trends to make it better for people to invest. So that was a really good final project. I think that was my very last one before I rolled off of Capital One. And it sounds like it's um, kind of in a different world than you know what you studied, right? Like stats and gov. What was Capital One the stepping stone to? What did Kevin do after that? Yeah, it's a great question because you're right. It was super unrelated to what I did in college. It was also pretty unrelated to what I did next. And to be honest, I didn't really know what Capital One was going to be a stepping stone to when I first started. And even while I was there, 
maybe I had in my bones that this was a temporary move, that this would be a great way to learn. And I'd figure it out there. And in the course of figuring it out, I don't think I expected to make a switch, but I ended up going very different and realizing I wanted to go into public service. It's what I was doing during my gap year, but there were a few reasons I didn't continue focusing so much on that in college in particular. You know, I didn't think there was enough infrastructure as an individual person to go do public service. I worked with a nonprofit during that gap year that ended up being uh, run by fraud, which was really heartbreaking. And so I think that's why in college, I didn't do as much of it because of that residual trauma. But I think after Capital One, I, I was thinking, or towards the end of Capital One, I was thinking about ways I could get back to it. What are you know more structured and more reliable ways to go into public service that have less risk uh, associated with them? I also didn't want to start my career over, but I thought the military would be a great way to A, hone my leadership experience, and then B, transition to other public service jobs. Like I think the military was actually meant to be the stepping stone to something else because usually it feels like vets have this aura about them that's like, oh, this guy is definitely about public service. He's putting you know his life and his time on the line. So it seems unassailable. But before I joined the military, it seemed like, okay, he worked at a bank that gave credit cards to the lower end of income population in America. So why exactly does he want to do public service? I felt like I needed to fix that. And that's kind of why the military was a draw. And like I mentioned, like I really wanted to become a better leader. And you ended up joining the, joining the Marine Corps, correct? Yeah, that's right. So I remember there's a story where I, uh, I was recruiting for Capital One at Harvard trying to get seniors to come join our company. And uh, I was actually at the fair where I saw the Marine Corps recruiter. And so to his left, you have all these tech companies. And to his right, you have all these banking firms. And then in the middle is just him. And no one was talking to him. And I remember asking him, like, what are you doing here, man? Like, why are you even here? And I remember his answer. It was really powerful. He said that um, the military is not a popular option for a lot of people who come out of Harvard. But he was there because the Marine Corps believes in getting the best Marines. And it's easy for him to get people. He says that he could fill his roles, his quotas, like three times over with the people who want to do it. But what he really wanted was the best. And that's why he was coming to recruit at Harvard, even though he didn't think anyone would join. It was definitely some reverse psychology (laughs) going on there. And I'm surprised that it kind of worked on me. But I really liked that answer. And I really liked kind of how he was thinking about it. And it was probably the first time I started thinking about military more seriously as a transition after Capital One. That was, it was a really powerful moment. And when I was thinking about the military, it was always the Marines. I think it just has the reputation, like short of special forces, the Marine Corps is probably the most intense branch. We have the highest physical fitness standards, and we tend to be the first to deploy when it comes to major conflicts around the world. And I think about the Marine Corps as your first response to try to put fires out before they get too big. Certainly in a big war, you want the Army, the Air Force, and the Navy. But before, you know, your gamble to try to fix it before it gets too bad to win the fight before it starts. I think that's the Marine Corps. You mentioned that you decided to join the military or more specifically, you decided to join the Marines to learn how to be a better leader, but also, you know, as a stepping stone to to maybe, you know, like public sector work or, uh, or government work. I remember like from my time at Harvard is that a lot of people focused on public sector 
and also Gov, but it kind of, it was focused around the Kennedy School, right? Like the people who wanted to go into public service, they spent a lot of time at the Kennedy School taking classes there. And, you know, in terms of uh, leadership and stuff, there was a lot of, a lot of clubs, a lot of initiatives all about like public leadership. But here comes the, <laughs> the recruiter and he says, not a lot of people want to do this. So do you feel that your decision to join the Marine Corps helped you achieve what you wanted? And why do you think not a lot of people from Harvard, or I don't know, maybe from other Ivy League schools, don't take that path? I think there's some vague history around this, especially around the Vietnam War. It used to be the case that a lot of the most highly educated students in the country would join the military. Granted, that was back in an age where like wealth and education were like literally one and one. So I think historically, that was the trend. Somewhere around the Vietnam War, I think people started feeling that, you know, military service was not something to be proud of, especially given the politics of the time. But ever since that began, it seemed to continue and persist. And nowadays, when I think about it, you know, I can think about kind of my own situation where my parents were really skeptical that the military would be a good place to start. They really thought that this was a waste of my skills, to say bluntly. And I think a lot of people have the perception of the military as being a place where you take a lot of orders and you don't have much autonomy. And that's actually really not true. Most people don't understand that the military is 90% enlisted, which are folks with just high school degrees. And then 10% are officers, which are the ones with college degrees. Coming out of college as an officer, you actually get a lot of management opportunities. And it's actually the fastest way to manage in my book. So when I got out of the military, after a year and a half of training how to be a leader, I came out and was given a, a platoon of 80 Marines to manage. That's like a really rare opportunity. I think that part of things isn't played up enough when they come recruit at these schools. But I also think there's a little bit of just distaste for violence. I think we kind of want to believe that war and oppression, these things are just like pieces of ourselves that we need to extinguish internally and that they don't deserve a place in a civilized world. But I guess I just have a different view of how conflict doesn't necessarily help society, but it will always be a part of society and managing it and protecting against it and allocating resource towards it, I think is really important in the ecosystem of things, of just making a society work. With that in mind, like I, I do think I got a lot out of my military experience. It's made me much more outgoing uh, and much more assertive. I actually feel more autonomous in the military than I did at Capital One. It felt like job titles were extremely stifling in Capital One. And it was really hard to not do what someone told you. But actually, in the military, it's very rare that people lean on authority to get things done. I think instead, it's this understanding that we're all part of a team and we need to get the mission done. And sure, if bullets are flying, that's when the chain of authority kicks in and you better do what the guy who's higher ranking tells you. But it made me a much more thoughtful person about, you know, how do I get people to listen to me, even if they don't have to. There's a lot of influencing up and across the organization. And sometimes knowing people have to listen to you forces you to think harder about what you're asking them to do. Because I could ask my Marines who report to me to do all sorts of dumb stuff and they'll do it. but how do I avoid getting deluded into thinking that they're really following me? It's really hard, right? Like you, you don't know if they're actually enthusiastic about it or not. So it's a lot of introspection of like being honest with yourself. Are you actually being a good leader or are you just thinking that you are? 
And the fact that we spend so much time in our training, like the training cycle is, for me, it was 15 months, 15 months, all focused on how do you lead, right? They teach you how to lead from a small fire team of four people to a squad of 13, and then a platoon of 40. And then eventually like a company of, you know, 150 to 200, they really lay it out there. And I don't think there is any equivalent for that kind of leadership in the real world. Like there is no management training that helps you learn how to run a company like that, unless you're doing it as a startup founder. I gained a ton from that experience just from looking at leadership as an abstract and isolated principle. And that was great. Uh, It's really hard to get that anywhere else. That is an amazing take from someone who has had some friends at college who kind of were thinking about the army or, you know, had some conversations about the topic, never actually heard a, a take this this detailed and, um, and inciting, which then leads me into my next question. What did the process look like? Did you have to kind of quit Capital One and join this program full time? Or was it kind of like part time and you uh, took another uh, full time job next to it? How did that look like? There's essentially three parts to it. The first part is, are you even allowed to become a Marine officer? To get to that, you need to apply on paper to get into what's called OCS, which is Officer Candidate School. So this is a 10-week program that I think of more as a 10-week job interview where they test whether you're even capable of being an officer. Everyone is referred to as candidate. You don't get to talk about yourself in the first person. You don't eat unless they tell you to eat. You don't sleep until they tell you to sleep. It's kind of your classic movie version of boot camp, right? I remember it was super brutal. I went in January, which was freezing cold in Virginia. And I remember they had started doing stats on how much people were eating and exercising. And uh, we were eating on average 5,000 calories a day, which is an absurd number of calories. And at some point, I think I looked at a piece of cake one day. And I was like, first surprised they were giving us cake, but also wondering like, wow, this isn't really healthy. Maybe I shouldn't be eating this. And then they weighed me. And I realized that even within, I think at that point, I was like halfway through the program, I already lost like 12 pounds, which is a lot when you're working, when you're exercising that, when you're eating that much and exercise that much, like I felt like, wow, I'm losing way too much weight, way too fast. I ended up losing 20 pounds by the end of the 10-week program even eating 5,000 calories a day. So that gives you a sense of how physical the process is. We're constantly running every morning. You wake up at 4 a.m., you line up outside at 4.30, you're exercising, PTing until late morning. You get like 10 minutes to shower. And I've never showered with so many dudes at once in an enclosed space. Um, But uh, that's part of it, right? Part of it is like, we need to strip out the individual so that we can start replacing it with the Marine. So it's a brutal 10 weeks. It's very physically punishing. I wanted to quit a few times, but ended up hanging strong. And actually, my the, my fire team of five people, I was the only one who graduated. So it's a pretty rigorous process and really rigorous interview. After that, you, uh, you are officially a Marine. You commission as an officer. And you go straight to TBS, which is the basic school. And it's called basic because the basic infantry officer school, you're basically learning how to be your Marine. So for six months, you learn how to run platoon to company level tactics. And that's kind of your, your 40 to 200 person organization where you learn how do you employ machine guns? How do you call artillery? How do you navigate on a map to make sure you get to the enemy destination? How do you tactically deploy your resources in the most efficient way to achieve your objective? 
How do you communicate with your allies, the people to your left and the right, and call and support when you need it and think about logistics? Six months of that gets you pretty darn good at the basics. And you find that you're able to really work on your personal leadership skills in that time frame. And you get a very intense application of it in TBS. You spend like maybe a combined like five weeks sleeping out in the woods. And in the hot of summer, because I went from March to September, it could be brutal in a totally different way. You know, I was freezing my ass off at OCS, but at TBS, I was sweating like a pig. Sometimes the heat just breaks you. I think one guy, he ended up getting medically separated because he had a heat stroke so bad that he could no longer sweat without developing heat stroke symptoms. So he, he also got pushed out in TBS. So it's still brutal, less brutal, but it's still the Marine Corps. After that, you go on to your job, uh, job-specific training. So my job was a logistics officer. So I went to a logistics school in North Carolina. There was a gap in my training where I got to do like a quote-unquote internship by like working at a unit full-time. But I don't really think too much of that. That was really just a holding pen for me to go to logistics officers course. And that's where I learned more about my job. So logistics has transportation, general engineering, supply, medical and dental, like all that falls under logistics. And we had to spend three months getting the specifics of each of those culminating in a field exercise. Everything about the Marine Corps is really tailored towards getting out there, doing things, executing your tasks, and deploying people in the most efficient way possible. So very long 15 months for me, but wow, I I would be challenged to find a better way to train someone who comes from a non-military background and to come out as someone who feels confident standing up and leading a company. I think it was was a really priceless experience. Coming out of that very intense experience, what did you decide to do after that? What I learned at Capital One, even though I don't think I loved fintech at the time, I still felt like there was a rush that comes from just learning and growing and just understanding an industry. So I really wanted to keep developing my professional skills. So I left the Marine Corps active duty portion after that 15 months of training. And I moved to San Francisco and was full-time working for Visa and part-time, like one weekend per month, two to four weeks additionally per year doing the Marine Corps. Um, So in this way... I thought I was achieving like this perfect balance of like still able to be intellectually engaged full time and still having my thumb on the, the public sector side. So yeah, I was in San Francisco doing that. Did that for about two years. You know, Visa's not the same as Capital One. So Capital One is the guy who issues you your credit card. They own the plastic. Visa is like the pipes that kick in after you swipe your card. So once you swipe your card, your payment travels along either Visa or MasterCard's network or American Express's. And that's how you confirm, hey, does this guy have enough credit? The merchant's going to take his cut of the sale. It enables a transaction. It's actually a very complex process, but it goes through four different parties in the system and uh, returns your transaction in like less than two seconds. I thought that was fascinating. I thought it'd be a good way to leverage my existing Capital One skills. And even though I knew I wasn't super passionate about fintech, I did know that things were changing, right? Like, I think that's about when Venmo started becoming really big and people realized, like, wow, like it brings people a lot of joy to have financial services be good. I was also not sure where else I would go. I didn't really understand the tech world that well. And so I didn't feel comfortable kind of jumping into a Facebook or a Google or something like that. I don't even know if they would have taken me, frankly, but. 
Visa seemed like a good place to leverage my existing skills. That was my next step. You were in Silicon Valley, this Harvard Tech Seattle podcast. So did you end up staying in, in the Valley or like did you end up staying in the tech sector? Just for those two years. Uh, so for those two years that I worked, this is 2017 to 2019 now. Like That's where I stayed in San Francisco. But I, I got a call basically April of 2019. There was a general from the Pentagon who was asking for talent. He really needed someone who could come in and do analytics for him. He was basically saying like, look, we, we need analytics talent. I don't have enough of it on the active duty side. Where does it exist in the reserve side? And that's how they found me because I'd had like this stats degree from Harvard and I had this background in fintech at Visa and sort of Capital One. So that's how they found me and they asked me to work at the Pentagon. And I actually did kind of stay in tech. At the Pentagon, my project was focused around predictive maintenance or what we call conditions-based maintenance. Basically, we were trying to introduce technology into the DOD, into the Marine Corps, where it didn't exist before. And so I was working still in tech, but in a totally different application of it, in one that I never thought would be possible. Like I never thought about combining both of those skills and using both of them at the same time. Very cool. We were basically trying to figure out like, how do you move data from an asset like a truck onto a cloud computing server that's shared across the entire DoD? And then how do you bring an AI player into the mix to analyze what's in the cloud and produce outputs for telling you when to conduct maintenance on a vehicle? How do you order parts ahead of time so that they arrive when the vehicle is about to break, as opposed to waiting for the vehicle to break before ordering the parts? And then how do you make that interface really user-friendly? So a mechanic who's a Marine, by the way, who you know never went to college, knows exactly how he's supposed to navigate fixing this giant piece of equipment. It was actually a very technical challenge. And it felt like I was working more in tech with the Marine Corps at the Pentagon than I was at, at Visa or Capital One. Kind of funny how that works. So was this kind of a, a new trend that was happening in, in the DOD? Why they want to have home talent rather than contractors as usual? It's a great question. You know, tech has disrupted so many industries in the past like 30 years. I think defense in general is really holding back. And the main reason is because there is this moat, there's like this separation. It's really hard for the private sector to get involved in military. And it's really hard for the military to like be able to bring private sector approaches into their ecosystem. So one thing that I guess you need to know is that all these big companies like Booz Allen Hamilton and Boeing and Raytheon, they were really awesome when it came to hardware. Like the old way that we fought was about having more sophisticated equipment. And it was about like, how can we have the best air, land, and sea assets? Like how do we have the most ships in the world? We were great at that. And those companies were great at that too. I think what's changing about war is what's changing about the world. We are now moving to a more digital war era. You see like the focus on cybersecurity because we're realizing we can build new equipment that is connected um, and that utilizes the best of AI to make sure that we are cost efficient or using more precision and more radar and more communications capabilities. So I think because war is shifting, a lot of the companies that were successful in the past are not as successful going in the future. They're trying to kind of slap on like, oh, like here's our software product, but these aren't software companies. 
They're mostly hardware companies. They're mostly heavy mechanical material science engineers. They're not necessarily the right people to go build products. And so trying to contract to those guys, I think there are some real challenges there. And I think the rise of companies like Andrew and Shield AI and Rebellion, these are companies that are coming to disrupt the entire defense industry. And we're still kind of at the beginning of it, I think, especially considering like how intensely people are feeling about war now. So yeah, like I, I think that's why like a lot of these big guys don't have the market cornered when it comes to the defense tech world. How did you get from there to the MBA route? So I never wanted to do an MBA. I specifically thought that an MBA would be... It's not that it wouldn't be useful, but it just felt like I didn't want it or need it. Like I wanted to prove that I didn't need it. I think because... Maybe I had a chip on my shoulder because I didn't get into McKinsey, Boehner, BCG, but I wanted to kind of walk my own path and prove like, hey, there's an alternative way to do business. But um, once I was at the Pentagon and realized, wow, there's so much power that comes from you know pulling these two parts of my life together, how do I make a career in this? And I realized I needed to make a very serious transition. I really got to have to up-level here. So getting an MBA... One of the benefits of it, it, it is a great way to transition. And so I thought like that would be a great way to also use my GI Bill benefits. You know, if you do want to go to business school, going with the GI Bill is a great way to do it. So, you know, the barriers were going down and my reasons for doing it were going up. So at the end of the day, it became kind of a no-brainer, like, okay, I need to transition and it's no longer expensive. So let's do this. After the Pentagon, I spent a year in Korea, also with the military, just trying to get a more overseas experience. And that's when I was applying to business school. And that was also when I was just thinking about like what it means to like transition my career like this. On one level, it was a transition from military and professional life being compartmentalized to mentally, how do I combine them, right? And work in like defense technology. And there was also this concept of like, how do I do it from a different angle? Like think about this as an entrepreneur. And so for all those reasons, it felt like an MBA at Stanford was, was probably the best option just to really double down on tech, but also uh, on entrepreneurship. You know, when I first got in touch with you about the podcast, it was maybe also because I've been following your, your newsletter, Carol Defense, for quite some time and thoroughly enjoyed. So I'm wondering, did you start that newsletter actually got into the MBA program or like during your time at the Pentagon? I started this newsletter, Carol Defense, Pretty much right as I started school, I think the first issue was like August 30th, 2021. So very close to when uh, the MBA program began. And in it, I write about companies who are raising money, in particular, space companies, AI, ML, quantum computing, autonomy, like drones and planes and things, and cybersecurity. These are all really cutting edge defense tech. And I wanted to just like offer perspective on like what these things could be doing. Because the companies that are raising money don't always really work with the DOD. So I was trying to kind of paint a picture of like, oh, you just raised $10 million. Like, what if the DOD thought to use this capability? What would that do for our Marines in the field? So um, yeah, I started writing that newsletter to A, hold myself accountable to make sure that I was reading and keeping up with the latest and greatest on in the defense technology space. But also too, because I just wanted to start creating things. Like I've never built anything of my own before from zero, right? I had, I'd always had a lot of help. And 
this was actually the first time I was able to like sit down and build something from scratch that didn't exist before. So I've been doing it for a little more than six months now. And it's really rewarding. I learned a lot. I've made a lot of great new contacts and expanded my network as a result of it. I love your newsletter. I mean, I'm in tech. I'm a cloud engineer. I can't say, though, that I often come across news or you know analysis of, of defense tech. And I don't know. I'm always happy to kind of see it pop up in my feed. I, I'm glad you like it. I think, I think the reason no one writes about it is because you have to know both of the worlds implicitly. Like You have to understand how products are built. And you also have to understand how the military runs. Unless you have a reserve career, and by the way, most of the military looks down on reservists, right? Like they're like weekend warriors who aren't full time like the rest of us, right? But unless like you are a reservist, there's no possible way you could really get to know both of them unless you're like one in a million unicorn military who decide to code in their free time. But ultimately, it's a very small crowd that really walks both sides of that divide. I think that's why Cairo is sort of a rare bird in that landscape. Do you think there's a possibility for people who are interested in tech who you know might be you know concentrating in uh, computer science or or maths or anything like that, and also interested in defense tech, but not particularly interested in having a, a military career? Do you see maybe um, a way for them to to enter the field, or is it more of a kind of no? You really have to know uh, both sides of the story. I think you can just work with people who are in the military. One great thing about this is that about defense tech is it's a lot of vets who want to still keep figuring out how to contribute to the fight. So there's no shortage of veterans who are leaving active duty to come do this. They're really passionate. They're really knowledge experts in this. And just like, you know, if you're an entrepreneur and you want to like build a great company, you need to hire a great salesperson and a great marketing person and a great operations person. And they're not all going to be you. Like everyone's got weaknesses. And I think if you decide to work in defense tech, if you have the technology, that's kind of the more priceless skill. Like there's so many types of tech. It's really attractive out there. So, and because of some of the biases that we've talked about and how some people think about violence, like I think people tend to put defense tech lower on their list. If you are interested in defense tech, I actually think you have a really easy time finding people who are willing to share your expertise. And so long story short, I I don't think you need that experience necessarily just to get started. If you really want to like deeply understand and know, I think you should join the military, frankly. Like there's a lot of need, I think, for especially in cybersecurity. Like we really need more of that talent in the military. And there are ways now that you can join it as a reservist. And if you don't join the Marine Corps, you could be in and out in like six months, right? Doing the basic training. And a lot of us are more capable of it than I think we want to believe. But in terms of do you have to have it? No, absolutely not. Uh, And I think it's worth considering if you're working in a technology that applies to the military, just because, you know, we've seen now, like with Russia and Ukraine, how salient defense tech really is when uh, when a crisis comes up. So I kind of want to do a new thing with this episode with you, if that's okay. Kind of like a lightning round of questions. Uh, You know, first thing that pops in your mind. You all for it? Your game? Let's do it. All right, let's go. All right, question one. Advice to your freshman year self. Stop worrying about what other people are doing. Just do your own thing. Advice to your senior year self. Probably go talk to the Marine Corps recruiter a little sooner than... Like, go talk to the Marine Corps recruiter. (laughs) Be honest with yourself about what you do and don't want to do. 
best thing you learned at Harvard? How to dance. Do you still dance? I don't, unfortunately, not competitively, but I would love someday to get back into it in a lesser capacity. I still teach dance. So if anyone ever comes out to San Francisco or the Bay Area and like, wants to do a dance lesson, let me know. I'm, I'm always game. Advice to others who are interested in tech and particularly defense tech. The best technologists are the ones who are experts in something else. I think like being an expert in a field makes you just really good at applying tech to those problems. And so I really advise anyone who wants to be great in tech to be great at something else and then find the best uses of tech to go deliver that. And that will, by definition, make you a great tech person. Awesome. Final question. If anyone's interested to follow Chiral Defense, where should they go to check it out? Yeah. So the the URL is uh, chiraldefense.com. You can subscribe. It's pretty bullet formatted. So hopefully you can get through fast. Uh, and you can usually scroll down to the section that you're most interested in if it's space or cybersecurity or whatever. Awesome. And we'll definitely uh, post the URL in the episode description. So listeners, if you want to check it out, we'll definitely be posting it there. Okay. So that uh, brings us to the end of the episode. Kevin, it was fantastic to have you here on the show with us. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. All right. And final shout out to our podcast editor, Sol Fesna. Thank you so much. So that's it for episode nine. And see you next time. You can find us by email, LinkedIn, or Facebook at Harvard and Tech Seattle. Links will be in the show notes.